Welcome and thank you for joining me on episode 7 of Galaxy Rise. This is the May 2019th edition of the show, and I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. This was a crazy busy month for space exploration, space science, and astronomy in general. There were so many major stories, I didn't know where even to start. First off, on March 26th, Vice President Michael Pence announced that the U.S. was going to shift its plans for sending astronauts to the moon from 2028 to 2024. This created a frenzy of speculation and discussions online just about how NASA was going to achieve this goal, with the current state of its Orion crew capsule and the SLS launcher programs not even being flight ready. In early April, NASA Director Jim Bridenstine announced more details which included being open to working with commercial operators such as SpaceX, Blue Origin, and others to get the NASA boots on the lunar surface in this abbreviated time frame. With so much focus on this announcement, there was an enhanced fervor of excitement regarding SpaceX and Boeing's crewed space programs, both of which have seen major setbacks, including a catastrophic explosion testing the launch abort system on SpaceX's DM-1 capsule, fresh off its successful trip up and back to the ISS last month. SpaceX successfully launched its first commercial Falcon Heavy rocket with the Arabsat 6A satellite deployed to orbit, and then landed all three of its booster sections, two on land and one at sea only to then have the center stage booster tip over in rough seas on the return to port a week later. An international team of radio astronomers imaged the distant 55 million light year away M87 galaxy for over two years and then collected so much data that they were able to create a composite image of the black hole at the center. This image, basically a fuzzy orange donut, is said to have confirmed Einstein's theory of general relativity due to the bending of light depicted in the image. And on April 1st, two US-based LIGO gravitational wave detectors resumed the search for ripples in space and time caused by ancient and distant cosmic events. LIGO has received a series of upgrades which have increased the sensitivity 40% over prior levels. Also joining the hunt is a French-Italian-based Virgo detector, which will work in consort with LIGO's detectors to more accurately pinpoint the source of detections. Already, there have been several candidate detections which have scientists and researchers quite excited. Caused by the mergers of large mass objects, such as neutron stars and black holes, gravitational waves travel across immense distances and over huge spans of time. Due to specific details related to an attribute called dispersion, these detections are also adding evidence to the confirmation of Einstein's theory of gravity, as stated in general relativity. Needless to say, these major stories have pretty much dominated all the headlines. I'm going to dig into some of the lesser covered but equally relevant events of the past few months. On the musical side of the show, we're going to be featuring tracks from the Silent Records label out of San Francisco, the brainchild of Kim Cascone. The label was one of several preeminent American ambient electronic labels starting in 1986 and played a huge role in the growth of the genre in the early 90s. The label recently rebooted, and we've gotten permission to feature their releases on the show. You can find all the music from tonight's show over at silentrecords.bandcamp.com. Go check out and pick up the digital or CD versions of over 70 of the label's releases. Thanks for tuning in, and please do contact me with questions or comments about the show. Email me over at hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com.
1994, that's the Spice Barons with the track Cogito Ergo Alm off the compilation Unidentified Floating Ambience. Spice Barons is the project of the artist Don Falcone, who has recorded industrial, noise, experimental, ambient, space music, prog rock, world jazz, and drum and bass. Don released full-length albums and individual tracks for silent records under the name Thessalians, Spice Barons, Satellite 4, Pattern Clear, Hydrosphere, Astralfish, and he's played synthesizer on the Heavenly Music Corporation's first album. You can buy this over at silentrecords.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Launch Report. This month, we'll check in on recent space and aerospace-related news, as well as review the recent and upcoming rocket launch schedules. On April 17th, NASA and its ISS partners have set a new schedule and new crew assignments, which will include the first flight of NASA astronaut Jessica Meyer, and an extended stay for NASA astronaut Andrew Morgan, and a record-setting flight for NASA astronaut Christina Koch. Koch, who arrived at the space station on March 14th, is now scheduled to remain in orbit until February of 2020. She'll set a record for the longest single spaceflight by a woman, eclipsing the record of 288 days set by former NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson in 2016 through 17. She'll be part of three expeditions, 59, 60, and 61 during her current spaceflight. Her mission is planned to just be shy of the single longest spaceflight by a NASA astronaut, 340 days, set by former NASA astronaut Scott Kelly during his one-year mission in 2015 to 2016. Meyer's September launch to the space station will mark her first spaceflight. The Caribou, Maine native was selected as an astronaut in 2013 while serving as an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital. She holds a bachelor's degree from Brown University and a master's in space studies from International Space University and a doctorate in marine biology from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And she just so happens to be a bridesmaid at my friend's wedding. Such a small world. A flourishing global small satellite market is driving demand for new ways to access space. Recent industry feasibility studies backed by the European Space Industry for micro-launcher services are creating new business opportunities. A micro-launcher can place a small satellite of up to 350 kilograms, typically small commercial or experimental satellites, into low orbit starting from the ground or from an aerial platform. ESA's support allows these companies to bring their ideas to the basic level of maturity, creating value in the market and networking possibilities with other businesses. Recently, five companies had presented their results at a workshop and networking opportunity organized by ESA in Paris, France. It was attended by more than 150 participants and more than 100 business-to-business -business meetings took place. With more expected, the first batch of technologies relate to low-cost avionics, composite tanks, the separation systems, turbo pumps, and safety framework for micro-launchers. As part of the program, in April, Spain's BLD Space demonstrated the technologies for a reusable first stage of their orbital micro-launcher, the Miura 5. A Chinook CH-47 helicopter lifted the 15-meter-long, 1.4-meter diameter Miura 5 demo first stage to an altitude of 5 kilometers, and then dropped it in a controlled area over the Atlantic Ocean, 6 kilometers off the coast. During the descent, electronic systems, including a demonstrator, controlled a carefully timed series of three parachutes to slow it down until a splashdown at a speed of 10 meters per second. A team of divers recovered the demonstrator and hoisted it into a boat, which returned to the port. The demonstrator looks to be in good shape and will now be transported to PLD Space in Aish for inspection and further analysis. The same parachute system will be used on the Miura 1 suborbital microlauncher on track for a first launch later this year. Under a Commercial Space Launch Act agreement, Blue Origin will upgrade and refurbish Test Stand 4670 at NASA Marshall's Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, to support testing their BE-3U and BE-4 rocket engines. The BE-4 engine was selected to power ULA's new Vulcan rocket and Blue Origin's new Glenn rocket. This is the test stand that once helped power NASA's future launches to the moon and will eventually lead to the emergence of an entirely new economic sector commercial space, says NASA's Deputy Administrator Jim Morhar. Now it will have a role in our ongoing commitment to facilitate growth. Constructed in 1965, Test Stand 4670 served as a backbone for the Saturn V propulsion testing for the Apollo program, which celebrates the 50th anniversary later this year. Later, it was modified to support testing of the Space Shuttle external tank and main engine systems. The facility has been inactive since 1998. 
We're excited to welcome Blue Origin to our growing universe of commercial partners, says Marshall Center Director Jody Singer. This agreement ensures the test stand will be used for the purpose it was built. NASA identified the 300-foot-tall vertical firing test site at Marshall as an underutilized facility and posted a notice of availability in 2017 to gauge commercial interest. Blue Origin responded and a team was commissioned to begin exploring the proposed partnership. Bob Smith, Chief Executive Officer of Blue Origin notes, through this agreement, will provide for the refurbishment, restoration, and modernization of a piece of American history and bring the sounds of rocket engines firing back to Huntsville. For April launches, we started off on the 1st with India's satellite launch vehicle designated PSLV C45, which launched the EMI-SAT satellite, reportedly an electronic intelligence gathering spacecraft for the Indian government. Multiple secondary payloads from international customers, including 20 Dove nanosats for Planet, rode piggyback on this mission from the Satish Dhawan Space Center. On the 4th, an Arian Space Soyuz rocket, designated VS-22, launched on a mission from the Guiana Space Center in South America. The Soyuz carried the fifth set of four satellites for O3B networks. Later that day, a Russian government Soyuz 21A rocket launched the 72nd Progress cargo delivery ship to the International Space Station from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. On April 11th, the first commercial SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket launched the Arabsat 6A communication satellite from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. A Northrop Grumman Antares rocket launched on April 17th, sending the 12th Cygnus cargo freighter to the International Space Station. April 20th, a Chinese Long March 3B rocket launched a satellite from the country's Beidou Navigation Network into an inclined geosynchronous orbit. Scheduled for May, starting on the 2nd, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket will launch the 19th Dragon spacecraft mission on its 17th operational cargo delivery to the ISS. On May 3rd, a Rocket Lab Electron rocket will launch on its sixth flight from the facility in the Mahai Peninsula in New Zealand. Electron rocket in its Curie upper stage will place three small satellites into orbit for the U.S. Air Force's Rapid Agile Launch Initiative, as well as several other small test payloads. May 13th, a Russian government Soyuz rocket will launch a Glasnost-M navigation satellite from the Plutsex Cosmodrome in Russia. Targeting May 16th, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket will launch the Radarsat Constellation mission for the Canada Space Agency and MDA, consisting of three radar Earth observation spacecraft launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Finally, on May 29th, a Russian government Proton rocket and Breeze-M upper stage will launch the Yamal-601 communication satellite for Gazprom Space Systems from Kazakhstan's Baikonur Cosmodrome.
So I liked that last album so much, I decided to play another track off of Unidentified Floating Ambience. That is Don Falcone's Hydrosphere Project with the track Nebula. Falcone was instrumental in helping shape the feel of Silent Records and wrote the liner notes to many of their releases. Go get this excellent ambient album over at silentrecords.bandcamp.com. This month on the Hubble Moment, we celebrate the 29th anniversary of the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. NASA released an image of the Southern Crab Nebula in honor of the event. The nebula, officially known as HEN2-104, is located several thousand light-years from Earth in the Southern Hemisphere constellation of Centaurus. It appears to have two nested hourglass-shaped structures that were sculpted by a whirling pair of stars in a binary system. The duo consists of an aging red giant star and a burned-out star, a white dwarf. The red giant is shedding its outer layers. Some of this ejected material is attracted by the gravity of the companion white dwarf. The result is that both stars are embedded in a flat disk of gas stretching between them. This belt of material constricts the outflow of gas so that it only speeds up way above and below the disk. The result is an hourglass-shaped nebula. The bubbles in gas and dust appear brightest at the edges, giving the illusion of crab legs. These legs are likely to be the places where the outflow slams into surrounding interstellar gas and dust, or possibly material which was lost earlier by the red giant star. The outflow may only last a few thousand years, a tiny fraction in the lifetime of the system. This means that the outer structure may just only be thousands of years old, but the inner hourglass must be more recent. The red giant will ultimately collapse and become a white dwarf. After that, the surviving pair of white dwarfs will illuminate a shell of gas called a planetary nebula. The object was first reported in late 1960s, but was assumed to be an ordinary star. Despite their name, planetary nebulae have nothing to do with planets. The name planetary nebula arose out of the visual similarities between some round planetary nebula and the planets Uranus and Neptune when viewed through early telescopes. When a star with a mass of up to eight times of the sun approaches the end of its life, it blows off its outer shells and begins to lose mass. This allows the hot inner core of the star to radiate strongly, causing this outward moving cocoon of gas to glow brightly as a planetary nebula. Over the next several thousand years, this nebula will gradually disperse into space. Originally imaged in 1999 by Hubble, these latest images were taken on March 2019 with a wide set of color filters on Hubble's newest sharpest detector, the Wide Field 3 camera. The images are composites of observations taken in various colors of light that correspond to the glowing gases of the nebula. Red is sulfur, green is hydrogen, orange is nitrogen, and blue is oxygen. Hubble launched in April 24, 1990 aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. From its perch high above the sorting effects of Earth's atmosphere, Hubble observes the universe in near-ultraviolet, visible, and near-infrared light. Over the past 29 years, the Space Telescope's breathtaking discoveries have revolutionized nearly all fields of astronomy and astrophysics. Among Hubble's landmark accomplishments include making the deepest views ever taken of the evolving universe, finding planet-forming disks around nearby stars, chemically probing the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars, identifying the first supermassive black hole in the heart of a neighboring galaxy, and providing evidence of an accelerating universe, propelled perhaps by some unknown source of energy in the fabric of space. Happy anniversary to the craft and congratulations to the collective international team of scientists, engineers, and astronomers who've made it so successful.
their 2019 release, Redshift, that's Lingua Lustra, with the track Blue Shift. The four-song album is a great new long-form ambient release from Dutch artist Albert Borkent. Producing under the moniker Lingua Lustra since 2005, this is his fifth release on Silent Records. Go pick up this digital release over at silentrecords.bandcamp.com. This month on Exclusively EXO, some exciting news coming out of the Swiss Geneva University, or UNIG. Over 4,000 exoplanets have been discovered since the first one in 1995, but the vast majority of them have been very short orbital periods around their host stars. To confirm the presence of a planet, it is necessary to wait until it has made one or more revolutions around its star. This can take from a few days to the closest star, to decades for the furthest away. Jupiter, for example, takes 11 years to go around the Sun. Only a telescope dedicated to the search for exoplanets can carry out such measurements over long periods of time. Such is the case of the Euler Telescope of the Geneva University UNIG in Switzerland, located at the Scylla Observatory in Chile. The planets with long orbits are of particular interest to astronomers because they fill in gaps needed to explain the formation and evolution of planetary systems. It took 20 years and many observers, says Emily Rickman, first author of the study and researcher at the Astronomy Department of UNIG. The result would have been impossible without the availability and reliability of the coralized spectrograph installed on the Euler telescope. The vast majority of known exoplanets are massive planets, close to their stars, and are the easiest to detect relying on traditional observing technology. However, planets with long periods of revolution are of greater interest to astronomers, being farther away from their stars. They can be observed using direct imaging techniques. To date, almost all planets have been discovered using two main indirect methods, radio velocities, which is the measure of the gravitational influence of the planet on its star, and transits, which is a detection of many eclipses caused by the planet passing in front of its star. The Euler telescope is run by the UNIG's astronomy department and is mainly dedicated to the study of exoplanets. Since its commissioning in 1988, Euler has been equipped with the Coralize spectrograph, which allows to measure radio velocities with the accuracy of a few meters per second, allowing for the detection of planets with the mass as small as Neptune. Dr. Rickman's planetary monitoring program was set up and carried out by many unique observers who took turns every two weeks over at LaSalle for 20 years. The result was remarkable. Five new planets have been discovered and the orbits of four others have been precisely defined. All of these planets have periods of revolution between 15.6 and 40.4 years, with masses ranging approximately from 3 to 27 times that of Jupiter. The study contributes to increasing to the list of 26 with a rotation period of greater than 15 years. But above all, it provides us with new targets for direct imaging, concludes the Geneva researcher. With an observing time span of more than 20 years, the Coralize survey is able to detect long-term trends in data with masses and separations large enough to select ideal targets for direct imaging. Detecting these giant companion candidates will allow researchers to start bridging the gap between radio velocity detected exoplanets and directly imaged planets and brown dwarfs. Long-term precise Doppler measurements with Coralize spectrograph reveal radio velocity signatures of massive planetary companions and brown dwarfs on these long-period orbits. Astronomers have discovered a third planet in the circumbinary planetary system, Kepler 47. This discovery cements the system's title as the most interesting of the binary star worlds, and marks the first complete and dynamically full planetary system around a binary star. A complete and dynamically full planetary system is one that cannot have any more planets, like our solar system. Circumbinary planets are those that orbit both stars in a binary star system, like Tatooine in the Star Wars films. With its three planets orbiting two stars, Kepler-47 is the only known multi-planet circumbinary system. The orbit in the two outer planets with this system falls well between the binary's habitable zone, the region where Earth-like planets could maintain liquid water on its surface. The planets in the Kepler-47 system were detected via the transit method, which relies on small decreases in the measured brightness of the star when viewed from Earth. The newly detected planet, dubbed Kepler-47d, was not detected earlier because its distance from the host star means it produces only a tiny transit signal. 
We saw the hint of a third planet back in 2012, but with only one transit we needed more data to be sure, said San Diego State University astronomer Jerome Orzos, the paper's lead author. With an additional transit, the planet's orbital period could be determined, and we were able to uncover more transits that were hidden with the noise in the earlier data. As is common with circumbinary planets, the alignment of the orbital planes of the planets changes with time. In this case, the middle planet's orbit was not aligned during the first two years of operation of the Kepler Space Telescope. In 2012, astronomers saw a hint of the existence of a third planet in the data. As the orbit of the third planet became more aligned, stronger transit signals were detected, and the transits went from undetectable at the beginning of the Kepler mission to the deepest of the three planets over the span of just four years. In 2015, we predicted the existence of a third planet in the system on the dynamic grounds. It's great to see that our reality matches our prediction, said Nadir Heightpower from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Hawaii. The inner, middle, and outer planets of the Kepler-47 system are 3.1, 7.0, and 4.7 times the size of Earth, and take 49, 187, and 303 days, respectively, to orbit the central binary star. The Kepler-47 planetary system is an example of the diversity of solar systems outside our own. Despite having two suns, the entire system is so compact that it could fit inside the orbit of Earth. It is approximately 3,340 light-years away in the direction of the constellation Cygnus. release from the project called Deeper Than Space, and that is the track Earthrise off the album of the same name. This is one of Silent Records' co-releases with Flask Records. The album was conceived and channeled by Adam Douglas after experiencing UFO sightings and alien contact during the summer of 1993. Pick this and three other Deeper Than Space albums up over at silentrecords.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Mission Control. NASA's Mars InSight lander has measured and recorded for the first time ever a likely Mars quake. The faint seismic signal detected by the lander's Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure, or SICE instrument, was recorded on April 6th, the lander's 128th Martian day, or SOL. This is the first recorded trembling that appears to have come from inside the planet, as opposed to being caused by forces above the surface, such as wind. Scientists are still examining the data to determine the exact cause of the signal. InSight's first readings carry on the science that began with NASA's Apollo missions, since InSight principal investigator Bruce Barnard of NASA's JPL. We've been collecting background noise up till now, but this is the first event that officially kicks off the new field, Martian seismology. The new seismic event was too small to provide solid data on the Martian interior, which was one of InSight's main objectives. The Martian surface is extremely quiet, 
allowing Sice Insight's specially designed seismometer to pick up faint rumbles. In contrast, Earth's surface is quivering constantly from seismic noise created by oceans and weather. An event this size in Southern California would be lost among the dozens of tiny crackles that occur there every day. The Martian Sol 128 event is exciting because its size and long duration fit the profile of moonquakes detected on the lunar surface during the Apollo mission, says Lori Glaze, Planetary Science Division Director at NASA HQ. NASA's Apollo astronauts installed five seismometers that measured thousands of quakes while operating on the moon between 1969 and 1977, revealing seismic activity on the moon. Different materials can change the speed of seismic waves or reflect them, allowing scientists to use these waves to learn about the interior of the moon and Mars. NASA is currently planning to return astronauts to the moon by 2024, laying the foundation that will eventually enable human exploration of Mars. Meanwhile, scientists working on NASA's Curiosity Mars rover have been excited to explore a region called the Clay-Bearing Unit since before the spacecraft launched. Now the rover has finally tasted its first sample of this part of Mount Sharp. Curiosity drilled a piece of bedrock named Aberlady on Saturday, April 6th. The 2370th Martian Sol delivered the sample to its internal mineralogy lab on Wednesday, April 10th. The rover's drilled shoot easily through the rock, unlike some of the tougher targets it's faced nearby on Vera Rubin Ridge. It was so soft, in fact, that the drill didn't need to use its percussive technique, which has been helpful for snagging samples from harder rock. This was the first mission sample obtained only using rotation of the drill bit. Curiosity has been on the road for nearly seven years, said Curiosity project manager Jim Erickson. Finally, drilling in the clay bearing unit is a major milestone in our journey up Mount Sharp. Scientists are eager to analyze the sample for traces of clay minerals because they usually form in water. NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spied a strong clay signal here long before Curiosity landed in 2012. Pinpointing the source of that signal could help the science team understand if a wetter Martian era shaped this layer of Mount Sharp, the three-mile-tall mountain that Curiosity has been climbing. Curiosity has discovered clay minerals and mudstones all along its journey. These mudstones formed as river sediments settled within ancient lakes nearly 3.5 billion years ago. As with water elsewhere on Mars, the lakes eventually dried up. Recently, Southwest Research Institute scientists announced evidence of abundant water-bearing minerals on the surface of asteroid Bennu. Using spectral data from NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft currently orbiting the asteroid, the team identified infrared properties similar to those of a type of meteorite called carbonaceous chondrites. Scientists are interested in the composition of Bennu because similar objects may have seeded the Earth with water and organic materials, says Swery's Dr. Victoria Hamilton, a mission co-investigator and lead author of a paper outlining the discovery published back in March. OSIRIS-REx data confirms the ground-based observations, pointing to aqueously altered, hydrated minerals on the surface of the asteroid. Typical planetary models show that around 4.6 billion years ago, the solar system formed from the gravitational collapse of a giant nebular cloud. The Sun, planets, and other objects such as asteroids and comets formed as materials within the collapsing cloud clumped together in a process known as accretion. Carbonaceous chondrites, which come from asteroids, show evidence for post-accretion interactions with water and or ice that led to chemical reactions that produced hydrated minerals. Because of these meteorites and their parent bodies formed so close to the beginning of the solar system, they may provide clues to the distribution, abundance, and movements of water in the solar disk at these times. During planetary formation, scientists believe that water was one of the many chemical components that accreted to form Earth. However, most scientists think additional water was delivered in part by comets and pieces of asteroids, including water-bearing carbonaceous meteorites, Hamilton says. Many of these meteorites also contain prebiotic organic chemicals and amino acids, which are precursors to the origin of life. Cyrus-Rex has also revealed a totally unexpected feature of Bennu. The spacecraft made the first ever close-up observations of particle plumes erupting from the asteroid's surface. Bennu also revealed itself to be more rugged than expected, challenging the mission team to alter its flight and sample collection plans due to the rough terrain. Shortly after the discovery of the particle plumes on January 6th, the mission science team increased the frequency of its observations and subsequently detected additional particle plumes during the following two months. The discovery of the plumes is one of the biggest surprises of my scientific career, says Dante Loretta, OSIRIS-REx principal investigator at the University of Arizona. 
and the rugged terrain went all against all of our predictions. Bainu is already surprising us, and our exciting journey there has just getting started. From the 2016 compilation, From Here to Tranquility, Volume 6, that's Heavenly Music Corporation with the track Seventh Sun Circuit. This is one of the signature projects from Silent Records founder Kim Cuscone. He has worked with a number of collaborators over the years and has four full-length and numerous compilation appearances as this moniker, and you can buy it over at silentrecords.bandcamp.com. Go check it out. This month on Unlikely Encounters, we're going to explore the Travis Walton UFO incident. This is the alleged abduction of an American forestry worker by a UFO back on November 5th, 1975. According to Walton, he was working with a timber stand improvement crew in the Apache Sitgraves National Forest. While riding in a truck with six of his co-workers, they encountered a saucer-shaped object hovering over the ground, approximately 110 feet away, making a high-pitched buzz. Walton claims that he left the truck and approached the object. A beam of light suddenly appeared from the craft and knocked him unconscious. The other six men were frightened and supposedly drove away. Walton claimed that he awoke in a hospital-like room, being observed by three short, bald creatures. He claimed that he fought with them until a human wearing a helmet led Walton to another room, where he blacked out as three other humans put a clear plastic mask over his face. Walton has claimed that he remembers nothing else until he found himself walking along a highway, with the flying saucer departing above him. In the days following Walton's UFO claim, the National Enquirer awarded Walton and his co-workers a $5,000 prize for Best UFO Case of the Year, after they allegedly passed a polygraph test administered by the Enquirer and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO. Walton, his older brother, and his mother were described by the Navajo County, Arizona Sheriff as longtime students of UFOs. Some ufologists believe Walton was abducted by aliens. Ufologist Jim Ledwick said, For five days, the authorities thought he'd been murdered by his co-workers, and then he was returned. All of the co-workers who were there, who saw the spacecraft, they all took polygraph tests, they all passed, except for one, and that one was inconclusive. Skeptics considered the case to be a hoax, describing it as sensationalizing on the part of the media, and a put-up job to make money. UFO researcher Philip J. Class considers Walton's story to be a hoax perpetrated for financial gain, and discovered many discrepancies in the accounts of Walton and his co-workers. After investigating the case, Class reported that the polygraph test, besides being thoroughly not scientific, were poorly administered, and that Walton used polygraph countermeasures such as holding his breath, and uncovered an earlier failed test administered by an examiner who concluded the case involved gross deception. 
Science and skepticism writer Michael Shermer criticized Walton's claims, saying, I think the polygraph is not a reliable determiner of truth. I think Travis Walton was not abducted by aliens. In both cases, the power of deception and self-deception is all that we need to understand what really happened in 1975 and after. In a 2015 article in Skeptic Magazine, Shermer writes, On July 31, 2008, I appeared on the Moment of Truth. The contestant was Travis Walton, arguably the most famous alien abductee in Earth history. I agreed to appear only if there was no sexual illusions, alien probes aside. My question for Mr. Walton, did you have any evidence support that your claim of being abducted? Of course, he answered in the affirmative, because for three decades, Travis Walton has been telling people on that evening of November 5th, 1975, he was zapped by a UFO while working as a logger. His evidence? His co-workers said they saw it happen. Five days later, Walton called from a nearby payphone to report that aliens had let him go. And none too soon, because Walton and his co-workers were about to miss their deadline of November 10th to finish logging the job, after which they would be docked 10% of the contract unless a quote-unquote act of God prevented completion. Enter the UFO. Now, 33 years later, Walton was once again up on the polygraph hot seat. His affirmative answer to my question passed the truth test, because of course, Walton believes he has evidence in the form of his friend's corroborative story. The next question for $100,000 was refreshingly straightforward. Were you abducted by UFO on November 5th, 1975? Without hesitation, he barked, yes. The voice in the sky once again boomed. That answer is false. I couldn't believe it. Neither could Walton, whose jaw dropped faster than a crashed flying saucer. At last, after a best-selling book, popular film about his abduction, after countless UFO conferences and media appearances, it took a Fox reality TV show to bring down the case to a head. Cognitive psychologist Susan Clancy argued that alien abduction reports began only after stories of extraterrestrials appeared in films and TV, and that the Waltons were likely influenced by the NBC television movie The UFO Incident that aired two weeks before his own claimed abduction and dramatized the alien abduction claims of Betty and Barney Hill. Clancy noted the rise in alien abduction claims following the movie and cites Class's conclusions that after viewing this movie, any person with a little imagination could now become an instant celebrity, concluding that one of those instant celebrities was Travis Walton. the artist Pragma with the track Hoyoke off the various artist release From Here to Tranquility Volume 8, The Darkened Path. That's actually on the lighter side of the 12 tracks, which includes submissions from Dead Voices on Air, Legion of Green Men, Ohm, and Meter Pool. I want to thank you in advance for giving the folks over at silentrecords.bandcamp.com 
a visit and do pick up this or any of their releases to add to your digital or physical music library. Wrapping up the show, we've got a different spin on Night Vision. The following is a segment from the November 1990 episode 16 of NASA's Starfinder series, focusing on Earthbound telescopes. The Starfinder series made use of information from the Hubble Space Telescope to teach science concepts. I hope you enjoy this overview. The Hubble Space Telescope is a great step forward for astronomers, but the optical and radio telescopes already in place on Earth are still marvels in their own right and continue to make major contributions. You'll see how today on Science Links. Earthbound telescopes are critical to gathering data from space. They come in many shapes and sizes, but all telescopes do the same thing. They collect energy or radiation to form an image astronomers can use to study the universe. Different types of telescopes collect different forms of radiation. Optical telescopes collect visible light and infrared radiation. Radio telescopes collect radio waves. When it comes to optical telescopes, bigger is better. Why? Large telescopes have a greater light gathering power. The larger the collecting area, the lens or mirror, the more light a telescope can receive. Large optical telescopes can observe very dim objects at tremendous distances. Large telescopes also have better resolution, which astronomers call resolving power, the ability to separate fine details. Increasing the size of optical telescopes allowed astronomers to find pairs of stars called visual binary stars, where they once thought there was one, or to bring the mysterious surface of the moon into crisp view. The larger the aperture size, that is, the diameter of the telescope's eye, the finer the detail we can detect with it. Unlike optical telescopes, radio telescopes can read signals from space 24 hours a day, continually scanning as Earth rotates. Some can be steered to face any direction of the sky. A radio telescope antenna is bowl-shaped. That's why it's called a parabolic antenna, or dish. The antenna catches the incoming signals and reflects them to a focal point. There, the signals are sent to a receiver which in turn relays the waves to amplifiers and recording instruments at the control center. Like optical telescopes, radio telescopes collect more radiation if they're larger. The largest parabolic antenna is in Puerto Rico. It's about the size of three football fields placed end to end. In spite of its size, it can only depict Saturn as a fuzzy blur. That's because radio waves can be more than a million times longer than light waves. The longer the wavelength, the less detail can be perceived by the antenna. To achieve high resolution or resolving power with a radio telescope, astronomers use interferometers. An interferometer is a telescope that's actually a combination of two or more radio telescopes linked together by electrical wire. These telescopes receive signals from space simultaneously, combining them into a single, sharp signal. The farther apart the antennae, the finer the detail. One interferometer has antennae in Sweden and West Virginia, 6,000 miles apart, forming a telescope nearly equal to the Earth's diameter. Once one or more collectors receive incoming radio signals, the radio waves are sent by cables to a control room for computer analysis and displayed on a video terminal. Radio telescopes have revealed radio stars that optical telescopes can't detect, as well as solar flares and invisible gases. Radio telescopes help discover pulsars, stars that emit very regular radio pulses no longer than five seconds apart. Scientists believe pulsars are rotating neutron stars. With the aid of optical telescopes, radio telescopes detected quasars, objects that can generate the energy of a hundred galaxies. They've also picked up radiation, thought to be the faint remnant of an explosion 15 billion years ago, 
one that may have given birth to the universe. Telescope design continually improves. Large modern telescopes are computer controlled, such as the W.M. Keck Observatory in Hawaii. Using it, astronomers can theoretically see the light of a single candle on the moon. Attachments to optical telescopes, known as spectroscopes, identify the chemical composition of stars, their temperature, and how fast they're moving through space by analyzing their Doppler shift. Using these tools, scientists continually seek more information about the nuclei of galaxies, how stars form, and the curious behavior of comets. These sophisticated earthbound instruments continually give us more clues about the beginning of the universe and its future. Well, that concludes this month's episode of Galaxy Rise. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to all the musicians, labels, and science communicators who've helped make the show what it is. Galaxy Rise is a production of Star Stuff Studios and is hosted by me, Dustin Ruoff. Let me know what you think by emailing hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at rise underscore galaxy. Search Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook or YouTube. Or visit www.galaxyrise.com. Until next month, clear skies. <laughs>